Okay. Hi. Good morning. Pamela Johnson here with the third of three presentations on pulmonary embolism, patient selection, protocol design, and interpretative performance. And we are uh, picking up where I left off, at talking about how to interpret scans, findings of pulmonary embolism, important things to note in the last presentation. We talked about the importance of looking for and documenting the presence of right heart strain and the RVLV ratio is that is the most significant predictor of mortality. What about the secondary findings in pulmonary embolism? Most commonly, pleural effusion and atelectasis, which are nonspecific. However, you can see infarcts, and these can be distinguished by imaging findings from pneumonia because they have a different appearance in many cases. So you may see peripheral opacities or decreased perfusion in a collapsed lung that is very well demarcated. Uh, a number of years ago, we did a stu retrospective study to see if we could, uh, if there were non-pulmonary arterial findings that would reliably enable us to determine whether a patient had a pulmonary embolism on a scan, per, for example, where we didn't have contrast, and there, the answer is no. <laughs> the most common finding, pleural effusion, non-specific, a wedge-shaped peripheral opacity might suggest a pulmonary infarct, but it's not definitive. A third of the patients had normally enhancing atelectasis, but the one finding that we did did determine was somewhat specific was the presence of well-demarcated non-enhancing atelectasis, and I'll show you a couple cases of that. Of note, about a third of the patients had absolutely normal lungs in pleura. So the, the answer is that the absence of pleuroparenchymal findings is of no significance. It does not help you make a determination of whether a patient has a PE or not if you have a non-contrast scan. They may have no findings. They may have non-specific findings. They may, and very rarely, they have a specific finding that requires IV contrast to make the diagnosis, which is the presence of an infarct as evidenced by a well-demarcated region of atelectatic lung that does not enhance. So normal lung... If you look at the left lower lobe, the collapsed lung is enhancing homogeneously. That's what atelectasis does when there's no fluid or infection or infarct. On the right side, we see an infarct or ischemia. It's very well demarcated region of decreased enhancement. This is the classic appearance of a, of a pulmonary infarct on a non-contrast scan in the lungs using the lung windows. And they have this, uh, these, this typical appearance of predominantly ground glass or a significant amount of ground glass opacity, as well as some linear or nodular areas of more dense consolidation at, and a peripheral location, as in this case. So if you see an infiltrate that looks like this, think, could it be an infarct? Because pneumonia, this is really not very classic for pneumonia, in, with pneumonia, we may have ground glass opacities like PCP, or we may have solid consolidation as we see in a bacterial infection, but this is a different look. Here's another example of a peripheral parenchymal opacity in the left lung in the setting of a pretty large left uh, main and upper lobe pulmonary embolism is seen on the image on the left. Another example of non-enhancing atelectasis at the left lung base in a patient with rather large emboli. And what's interesting is that the patients who develop pleuritic pain, um, in, in some cases you will not see an emboli 
in the location where they're having the pleuritic pain because those clots travel out so far to the tiny peripheral branches, which is what causes their symptoms. However, you may see ischemic lung as we see in this, in this case here in the left lower lobe. Another thing to keep in mind is that if you're doing an abdominal CT and you see this finding on an abdominal CT and you don't have images of the chest and it's very well demarcated, you've got to be concerned about the, a pulmonary embolism up in the chest that you haven't imaged. A rather large infarct in this patient in the right lower lobe, you can see that the a well demarcated area where the, the lung is just completely ischemic or infarcted in the setting of bilateral PEs. Here's, here's the, as I mentioned, here's an abdominal CT where we see the finding at the left lung base, really well demarcated. So if you have atelectasis that isn't enhancing pretty uniformly, that's probably either infected or the patient has heart failure and there's edema in the alveoli. But in this case where we have this really well demarcated region of decreased enhancement, that is ischemia or infarct. So you better look for that on the abdominal CT. You also should be looking for pulmonary emboli at the lung bases on abdominal CT. We see that in our oncology patients, and it's often unsuspected. What about chronic PE? Well, they, they're described as being more linear or mural in the configuration, so that should, should raise consideration of a more subacute to chronic time course, e even if you have no clot on a previous scan that was performed a year before or months before. And then eventually the clots can turn into bands or webs if they don't resolve. Chronic clot can be calcified. And eventually over time, if they have multiple recurrent PE, they develop enlargement of the pulmonary arteries, which become tortuous, and they get mosaic perfusion in the lungs. So here's a nice example of a web. This I would not even call a chronic clot. I would call it the sequela of a prior embolism. It's a very, very fine, thin, almost like a septation in the pulmonary artery. We don't want to anticoagulate for that. That is the what is left over from a prior clot. If it's small peripheral mural like this, we might suggest that it is a um, that it's chronic clot. Patients can go on to develop pulmonary hypertension uh, when they have chronic pulmonary emboli or recurrent pulmonary emboli and. In real pulmonary hypertension, the mean life expectancy is 2.8 years. So we, we should be very thoughtful about not giving this diagnosis to patients just based on a pulmonary artery diameter. And, and interestingly, patients with, um, with uh, advanced lung disease, actually, um, the the pulmonary hypertension does not correlate with the size of the arteries because the arteries can dilate even the, in the absence of hypertension. On the other hand, these patients often do have pulmonary hypertension because they have long-standing chronic lung disease. The, there have been a number of studies where the main pulmonary artery has been measured and 29 millimeters has been proposed as the upper limits of normal. Again, 29, 30 millimeters has has a high sensitivity and specificity in these publications. However, I measure a lot of pulmonary arteries and I find a lot of patients who have a, a pulmonary artery diameter of 29 or and, or even, you know, close to 30. And it, it just gives me concern that we may be over-diagnosing on imaging finding. And so if it's 32, 34, 36 millimeters, then we then I'm confident in us to to say that the patient um, 
that this can be seen in the setting of pulmonary hypertension. Again, not assigning the diagnosis because it's just an imaging finding, and the diagnosis has a median life expectancy of 2.8 years, and it's not a very common disease, although patients, we do want to find, identify the patients who do have pulmonary hypertension. Moving on to unusual causes and clinical scenarios. So usually if you find pulmonary embolism, we look in the femoral veins or the common or external iliac veins, and I've seen two cases now of internal iliac vein clot and pulmonary embolism, so it's another place to look. Keep that in mind. And interestingly, in both cases, the patient had a history of pelvic tumor, and so perhaps there, there was a, you know, some scarring related to surgery or radiation that increased the uh, thrombogenic um, factors within the internal iliac vein and they went on to develop a clot there and that can that can embolize as can gonadal vein thrombus you will see ovarian vein thrombus after oophorectomy and usually it just they don't actually they often for the most part they don't usually treat it and it's just a it's, it is a common finding if it's a large thrombus, we need to communicate that and they can make a decision, especially if it's going up into the renal vein or up into the inferior vena cava. This is a large left gonadal vein thrombus in a patient who actually did, um, did develop a pulmonary embolism. Here's a patient with gonadal vein thrombus on the right, ovarian vein thrombus, and um, sitting right next to the ureter. So you have to look very closely at the ovarian veins and make sure you're looking at the ovarian vein and not the ureter. Track the right ovarian vein up as it as it dumps into the IVC, and the left ends in the left renal vein, as shown on the coronal images. And the coronal NPR is helpful for confirming the presence of thrombus, as we see in the right ovarian vein in this patient. They, these patients can go on to develop pulmonary embolism. Patients with renal cell carcinoma, the tumor invades the inferior vena cava, and they can develop tumor thrombi it enhances heterogeneously, as in this case, whereas bland thrombus is usually, homo is usually homogeneously low density when it's acute. So the tumors that invade the IVC are renal cell carcinoma, adrenal cortical carcinoma, and hepatocellular carcinoma. But renal cell carcinoma is the one that is most that most commonly embolizes like this into the lungs. So if you see a tumor like this in the chest, if you see clot that looks like tumor thrombus in the chest, you need to be concerned about a renal cell carcinoma in the abdomen. Rarely, a patient may develop a pulmonary artery sarcoma, and it can look just like a, a large saddle embolism. So this is, uh, this was the, a patient with a very big saddle pulmonary artery sarcoma that's homogeneously low density, just like bland clot. And the only way that you can make the determination that this is a cancer or sarcoma is that on the follow-up CT, it is completely unchanged. And that's how the diagnosis is made in many of these cases. The patients present with signs and symptoms of a pulmonary embolism. It looks like a pulmonary embolism, and only after they fail thrombolytics does their suspicion increase that it's a pulmonary artery sarcoma, which is, again, very, very rare. It's not something we want to be throwing out in our differential diagnosis commonly. And uh, it often has findings that will uh, increase your suspicion that it's a, 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 a tumor rather than a clot. That is the presence of heterogeneous enhancement, necrosis, hemorrhage, ossification. One of the findings that described in the literature are um, that the thrombus occupies the entire lumen of the artery, although 
uh, I'm not sure that that is a reliable finding to distinguish a, a large acute saddle embolism from a, from a sarcoma. Um, and again, we have to give a differential diagnosis and be concerned about PE when we see a case like this. And when they fail treatment, then we then they will pursue whether it's a, a pulmonary artery sarcoma and do a biopsy. Patients with congenital heart disease often undergo CT, and what we what we see have seen in our practice is that, that patients with Fontan shunts uh, present a particular challenge because there is a basically a shunt or a baffle that's going from the cava from the subdiaphragmatic blood flow into the right pulmonary artery. So you have different sources of blood supply to, from the right pulmonary artery and the left pulmonary artery. And if you time it like a PE study, you're going to fill the left pulmonary arterial system, as in this case, but it's so dense that the artifact makes it uninterpretable. Even more uninterpretable is the right side, which has absolutely no contrast in it. So you end up with a completely non-diagnostic study. At best, you might get adequate visualization on the left side, but even in the left, in this case, you can see all the mixing in the left pulmonary artery, which makes it impossible to evaluate, even though there's good contrast in there. So the way that you perform these studies is that you have to put the cursor on the Fontan shunt and wait until that shunt fills in. And the best that you can get is a delayed venous phase scan that fills out both pulmonary arterial trees as seen in the image on the right. So again, standard timing, there's no contrast in the baffle. Delayed timing, everything is filled in. It's not a great level of enhancement, but it's better than what we would have had if we had just used the standard pulmonary artery timing. Some of these cases may have, patients may have had surgeries at, during childhood, like this bilateral Blalock talcic shunts. And these lo actually look like pulmonary emboli until you, unless you, until you trace act the course and it's not following the normal course of a pulmonary artery. It's actually going from the pulmonary arterial tree up to a systemic artery. And in this case, it's thrombosed with, both of these shunts were thrombosed with calcification because they're longstanding and they're occluded. But it's a, a potential pitfall that you want to avoid. You need to make sure that in these congenital heart patients, you have to look back in the chart. Sometimes it's way back in the notes and follow the course of anything that's, that's traveling cephalid before you assume that that is a pulmonary artery with a clot in it. This is a pulmonary artery valve replacement. We don't see those very often. Catheter fragments. This is, this is something that needs to be communicated immediately and followed up on as a retained foreign object. And, it can, and many times these are um, un, unsuspected, and we may be the first to identify them. Patients who undergo vertebroplasty can have cement travel out into the pulmonary arteries. Not, not, nothing you can really do about it at that point, but it is something that we see after they've had vertebroplasty, as in this case. Now, lastly, in some cases, you can make the diagnosis of a pulmonary embolism on a non-contrast CT. Clot is very bright on a non-contrast CT, as shown in the image on the right. And you can see the, the corresponding thrombus after contrast is administered in the image on the left. The, the density is, when it gets up to about 90 Hounsfield units, then you can have a high degree of suspicion. Most arteries measure in the range of 30 to 40 Hounsfield units when there's no clot in them. The problem, the caveat here is that when you get into these, the non-contrast scans and the lower lobes are so much noise, you do not want to be calling pulmonary emboli unless it is absolutely definitive, like in this case. 
Here we have a saddle embolism on a non-contrast scan. You see a lot better if you if you uh, increase the contrast of the window. You can see a large thrombus in the right. This is something you do not want to miss on a non-contrast scan. I mean, I, th I think we are really, uh, we would be accountable in this case. So I tell the residents at night, look at the pul main pulmonary arteries with a really high contrast window when you have a patient who has shortness of breath and they have a non-contrast scan and just make sure you're you're not missing this saddle embolism another example of peripheral clot in the setting of a right lower lobe infarct pre and post contrast you can see it's sort of the the density uh, it completely reverses the clot is high density on the non-con and it becomes low density after contrast administration I showed you this earlier as an, a nice example of an infarct, and the patient actually had a thrombus in the right femoral vein on the non-contrast. You can see the high density in the posterior vein confirmed by ultrasound. So we don't want to be making the mistake of overcalling, but do have a high level of suspicion and look very closely with high contrast windows when you have non-contrast imaging. In closing, uh, we've covered the whole gamut of patient selection, protocol optimization, and interpretive performance in pulmonary embolism imaging. And, uh, you know, um, collaborating with your ordering doctors to make sure imaging is appropriate is key, and creating high-value interpretations that aid in their management decision-making as to whether a patient needs to go to the unit or can be admitted to the floor, or can be treated as an outpatient, very important. It's a very important role that we play in the care of these patients. So thank you very much for your attention, and Happy New Year. If you liked what you heard here today, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit our website, ctss.com, for lectures, quizzes, pearls, and more. Also, be sure to check out our apps that are available for free on the Apple Store. All links are in the description box below.